Here's exactly what I would do. I would save up about five grand. I would hire three to four Filipinos off Upwork, get them in a, a small office in the Philippines. It costs about 200 bucks a month. And I would train them on the solar solar industry. And I would go find a solar company on Facebook or run a Facebook ad for $2 a day. You'll find a solar company and sell them leads. Um, and you have a $15,000 a month business within the next six months if you do that. If someone wants to spin this up and they want, I don't know, investment or something like that is that something you'd be interested in yeah they don't really need investment they can't find a way to hustle and sell a few couches and come up with a couple grand to start i don't know if they're going to make it work anyways you're listening to the next generation podcast weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20 somethings out there all right on today's show we have cole rude johnson cole how are you man good fellas thanks for having me on man looking forward to it yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. I think it's going to be very relevant to us and anyone else who's in real estate and trying to go and find some of their first properties. Um, so I want to kind of set the stage for anyone who's listening to this episode right now, because the path you've taken over the last really four years is pretty damn cool, especially getting like where you did with your first deal and where you're at now. So I'm just going to kind of read out this tweet that you made a little bit ago to kind of set the stage for some people listening. It basically says, in 2018, you made your first deal, uh, your first wholesale deal, grossed over $105,000 on the assignment fee on that. Uh, next year, basically went all in and realized that real estate was the way, that wholesaling and finding off-market properties was going to be a huge way for you to go and build wealth. So that was 2019. 2020, you made over $2 million between wholesaling properties and flipping properties. And then fast forward today, you've got a business that's doing over $2 million annually, presumably on top of some of the deals that you're also still doing, whether that's in the single family residential space or in the commercial space. Um, that's fucking really impressive, man. Well, welcome to the show. I'm excited to kind of jam about what that four-year journey looked like, share some of the learnings and all of that in between. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, it's a good summary. I, I threw that out there because it's, I've gone through my like origin story so many times now that I think that bullet points, uh, the part that people care about the most pretty well. So yeah, it's been a yeah. it's been a hell of a ride for sure. So I want to I'm gonna definitely want to jump into like when you hear about somebody making their first deal, typically it's somebody makes a couple bucks, and very rarely do you actually hear does somebody actually make six figures on their first deal jumping into the space. But before we get into that, I do want to like honestly start even earlier than that, like when you first figured out that you want to get into real estate. If I read and researched correctly, I think you you dropped out of school. Was it the first semester? Yeah, so I uh, went. I was huge in basketball in high school. So I, uh, my whole dream, my whole life was obviously when I was in the middle school and early high school. I'm like, I'm going to the NBA, and then you kind of stop growing at six. I'm six three, so I'm not short, but you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not NBA level height, and I, and I can't, I can't shoot the ball as well as I would like to. So I'm not NBA. The the guys like me who tend to make it to the NBA or can shoot the hell of the ball, and that wasn't me. So I got to college. I got a walk on spot at a D two school in LA, and I went down there. And I uh, was sitting in, I went down there for a semester, second semester of my first year. I also had done running start in high school. So I, I had a few credit. I had half my college done already ac academically. So I kind of jumped in as a junior and uh, I was down there for a semester, came home for the summer, went back the next semester and I was sitting in history class one day. And I just remember being like, like, why am I, why am I here? Um, it was around the time when the professor was like, Hey, like you, if you miss more than one day of class, you're, you know, I'm kicking you out of class and you're failing. I'm like, this just isn't like how I want to be spending my time. And my parents were, my parents had, you know, they'd done pretty well for themselves and they paid for a lot of my school, but then they wanted me to have skin in the game. So I did small loan every year to have skin in the game. And so I sat there, I'm like, I don't think this is worth the value that I'm put that I'm, that I'm paying. Right. My, I had to pay five grand a semester. So extrapolate that over four years or three years, say how long I stayed there, I'd be paying 10, 20, 30, 40 grand. I'm like, this just isn't worth it. So 
I drove back, packed up my call, car, middle of a school day and took off, drove back home. And uh, yeah, so dropped out of there technically my junior year because I did running start. And that was kind of my mindset too, is like I did running start. So I was going to go try this entrepreneurship thing for two years. And if I failed, I could still come back to college at the same educational standing as my peers. So um, <clears throat> that kind of gave me a big boost there for sure. But yeah, drop out. I own it. I like it. Uh, again, I don't think I was talking to my sister about the yesterday who was in college. I don't, I don't know of any time I've been asked. I work with hedge funds. I work with private equity companies. I work with a lot of big time developers. I've been a lot of podcasts and I've never once been asked like, Hey, what's your college degree? Hey, do you have you gone to college? It's always like, hey, I read your story, saw you dropped out, but I've never one time been asked for it. So uh, it's pretty crazy how it's all kind of played out over a longer period of time. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do as you were dropping out, or was it, hey, I'm just going to go figure out anything and and give myself a little bit of time frame to see what that looks like? It was more so like I remember since I was young, young, like middle school, elementary school, I never could conceptualize like working for someone else. I just never could wrap my brain around it. It always made me like want to puke, um, so to speak. Like it just made me, excuse me, it made me not excited to be out in the real world. That's why I think I tried to play basketball for so long because I was so, you know, I've never had a job to this day. I've been a basketball coach on the side, but I've never actually like gone. I've never had a deputy, never had a job. So it's always something that's kind of scared me. And it's a big part of kind of my engine of the entrepreneurs. Like I never want to have to go work for someone else. I love autonomy. But to answer your question, no, um, besides the, the NBA dream when I was young, um, that, that was really it. Besides that, I was just like, I got to find a way to make money. And I, I'm, I'm kind of a guy that's more on board with, I'm not, I'm not a big, like, do what you love, um, do what you're passionate about a guy. I think that's a luxury. I think for a lot of, especially young men, like it's more, you got to grind you got to figure out a way to make money if you want true autonomy and just start doing something. So uh, I guess to your answer, I wanted to make money. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of how I looked at it. I was going to say you're in the right crowd. And also for what it's worth, the nature of this podcast typically caters to those who are in that same mindset, who just want to make money and they're young. And like, I will say over the hundred plus episodes we've done, I think probably 20% of people have probably dropped out or just not gone to college in the first place. So I just always like understanding the psychology behind it. Um, and like what, what was going to going through your mind, you know, four or five years ago, yeah. but when you when you actually did right, let's maybe jump into that story then of like how you wanted to go and start making money, right? Um, talk to us about like how you got into real estate as kind of that vehicle in the first place, and then also like specifically this deal that you made over a hundred thousand dollars on for your first deal. How did that come to be? Yeah, absolutely. And before I jump into that too, I want to touch just people listening on the on the dropping out of school side. Like, it, dropping out of school should never be something that's you'll know if it's right for you because most entrepreneurs type a what it really takes to run a business you have this this urgency in you that for a lot of people just makes you uncomfortable sitting still for four years in a place that you don't see long-term value so um it's when people listen to this i don't want them just like say hey cool dropped out i drop out i have nothing against college for me i just couldn't sit still for four years and it didn't make sense you know um input output wise so moving on to kind of my first my first deal story so and how i got into real estate so i was a broker i became a broker that, that summer before I went back to school, before I dropped out when I was 18, just turned 18 or 19, something like that. And I got my license and I started doing open houses and hustling and cold calling expireds and, and showing houses for other brokers and making a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. But never did a deal myself, sell or buy. I was probably the worst real estate agent ever of all time. Um, even though I was putting in the, the work, so to speak, I just, I couldn't figure it out. And also I, I was raised in Bellevue where your average price point is a million bucks. And it's really hard to have a seller maybe a little bit of a limited belief, but it's hard to have a seller when I have a 19 year old with no book of business, sell their million dollar home in any market. So that was rough, but I finally hung my license at like my fourth brokerage called Caliber Real Estate. 
And they had a very interesting model where they were having investors come into their office every Thursday night because the auction was Friday morning. And then Fridays, they would they would pre-sell these auction deals to their investors in their office on Thursday nights and get hard checks from them, earnest money checks. And then they would go offer on those deals for their investors the next morning and they would make a five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar spread and they would do probably 10 of those deals a week. And so that was my first time like, this is very fascinating. It seems scalable. It seems fairly duplicatable. And let me look into this kind of off market. I went in his office that night. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, realistically, we're just wholesaling, but we're just using the auction as our deal sourcing channel. And, and just just for anyone listening, wholesaling is a very common term in real estate, but can you break that down? Oh, yeah, exactly? absolutely, man. Yeah, I always forget kind of what crowd I'm talking to. So wholesaling is just super easy to break down conceptually. It's uh, you, you're talking to sellers through whatever marketing channel you want. You could be door knocking, sending a piece of mail, cold calling them. And you're essentially making them an offer below, quite a bit below what their house is going to be worth when it's fixed up. So if someone has a house that's, that's 200 grand, um, and I know price per square foot, most homes are 40, 50 bucks a square foot when they need a rehab. So the home's 2,000 square feet. You can say, okay, it needs 100 grand of work. Um, it's worth 500 fixed up. You can do a little bit of math and you can say, hey, I can pay 320. So you're going to the seller. You're saying, hey, Mr. Seller, you have a beat up house. I specialize in this. And you're getting a purchase and sell agreement signed with the right to assign the deal. So that gives you the right to assign that contract. And then you're going through a Facebook group or a meetup or online. You're finding a buyer who picks and flips homes or hold homes, does Airbnbs, whatever they do with that asset. And you're saying, hey, I have this deal at 320. Pay me 340. You get the house. I get 20 grand. The seller gets 320. So you're just, you're just, you're middlemaning the deal. That's it. Um, it's the same as a boat broker or an airplane broker. All you're doing is you're you're finding a seller that needs to liquidate quickly for whatever reason, fire damage, pre-foreclosure, vacancy, probate, and you're liquidating, helping them liquidate that asset um, quickly and whatever you can negotiate as your fee, you take home. So uh, I hope that was a good enough explanation. But moving back to the story. So he told me, he said, I, I had no idea what wholesaling was up to this point. It wasn't a, it was, this was probably 2017. So it wasn't a very guru-y thing yet. It was very still kind of low-key. And he said, "I'm whole, we're wholesaling. We just do this as a, we just use this as a marketing channel." I was like, "This is interesting." So, literally, by coincidence, I was at um, <clears throat> Applebee's with a buddy that night, and we got a uh, on our Instagram popped up this guy um, in our in our market. that was young, probably he was probably 23, 24 at the time. He's probably twenty eight now. Who, who's ho holding this forty thousand dollar check on his Instagram story? Like, look at me! Like, I got forty grand, and I knew this guy. I met him, and he. Smart dude, I still have a good relationship with the day, but he wasn't like a genius. So I was sitting there with my buddy Paul, who was my first business partner. And we were like, if that guy can figure out how to do this, we can for sure figure out how to do this. And that next day, I neither of us were in school at this point. He was actually playing football at University of Washington as a running back, and he dropped out. He left the football team too. And we were sitting in my parents' attic, uh, upstairs room with a little computer. I have a picture of it on my phone. I just actually pulled up the other day. I was sitting there. And we just went to the title company. We got a list of properties. We got phone numbers from white white pages or some online source, and we were highlighting leads green, maybe's yellow, and nose red. And we were calling there all day for I think four to six months until we got our first um, our first deal that way. And our first deal didn't actually come from cold calling; it came from a broker. But eventually, we got traction of cold calling as well. So, uh, yeah. And then leading into that deal, um, I think that was part of the question. We, uh, I'd, I've always had the psychological framework of why focus on ten thousand dollar deals, right? So I, I was told by a guy named Thatch Wynn, who was kind of my, one of my first mentors in real estate. And he was like, you got to be going after mentally. You got to be focusing on 50, 60, $100,000 deals. And that's all I could think about. I'm like, okay, I want $100,000 deal. I want $100,000 deal. And then we we kind of did a once in a lifetime deal, but I haven't done a similar deal to that before. But we sold the builder in Seattle on this house and uh, we got it for 800. He bought it for 905. So our, yeah, our gross fee on it was 105 grand. And 
that kickstarted kind of the path to where I am now, but that's kind of the origin story from, you know, college to getting into it and discovering the whole concept and the niche of wholesaling and doing my first deal. Which I think is funny if you look at it from the dropping out standpoint, where it's like, yeah, not necessarily like, I think you need the right personality to, yes, you can drop out if you're willing to go cold call for six months or, you know, if you have the grit yeah. and hustle to go consistently do whatever it is that, that you think you can do. And, and, you know, to some extent, just fail every week and just keep trying at it, then it is, yeah, yeah you're, you'll definitely make a ton of money um, at some point. The the other part I think about your story that, that that's pretty cool is that it's not, I don't know, a lot of the people I think we interviewed, they, they have a bunch of businesses that don't really work in the beginning, and then they find something that works and they scale it up. Whereas I think it sounds like you've hit some kind of bumps in your own business that have forced you to kind of restructure and reflect on what you've been doing, but kind of along the same line of, of wholesaling. Um, could you maybe kind of touch on some of those big kind of pivot points of, I think first hiring, you know, just friends and getting them all in the same house. And then, you know, I think some yeah. of the burnout that happened there and some of those other aspects. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like every level of business, you do a significantly different and more complex uh, friction points to solve. And, you know, I sometimes kind of think back, it's, it's I'm, a, I'm a rap guy. There's a Drake song where he talks about like wishing he was back where he was now because once you see that you have this vision of success and you get there and usually it's more complicated and complex and you're dealing with more people and more emotions and you know like the whole thing like yeah like the more money you make the more people you have in your team the, the more issues arise like every every day i'm probably getting 10 to 20 slacks from or texts or phone calls or something wrong in one of the companies so kind of going backwards so like the when we first started in our first office after that first deal we went all in. We went and signed a, a three-year personally guaranteed office space for four grand a month in Renton, Washington, and uh, hired our first sales guy, who now is my partner, Mike, and just went for it. And that's what I, I think is, you know, I, I was blessed with parents, too, that kind of encouraged me with that kind of stuff. But I would say to people listening, like, you really, if you're going to drop out of college, you're going to go after it. You got to leap two feet forward. Like, the guys that I see try to leap into entrepreneurship or being self-employed, one foot in, one foot out, just, it doesn't. It just takes a lot longer or it doesn't work. So um, I think a big thing we did originally is jumping in two feet full steam ahead and giving ourselves no option. We It was either we figure it out or we fail. And for me, I was okay with the failure because I was already living at home at the time. The worst that happened to me, I had personally guaranteed the office, but where did I really personally guarantee like probably a thousand bucks in my bank account and some clothes? Like they could come take that from me if they want. So I think looking back, that beginning stage is the most fun because failure is like it, it doesn't mean anything, right? When you're, when you're young twenties, you have nothing to your name. There's nothing people can take from you. Our, 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 our society is set up for that. You can take a leap in that position. And like now for me, I have to be much more calculated because, you know, now I have a wife and I have a house and I have like real bills, real responsibilities where I, you know, the all, the all in leaps are a little, are a little scarier. So um, I think that's, I look back quite a bit on that time and like it's most one of the most fun times in business because you're just you're trying to figure every deal is so exciting every two grand you get is so exciting and then number like brain people as like humans we just get used to stuff so you think you want this nice car you get the nice car a month later you already auto a different car same thing you think you want 10 grand a month you make 10 grand a month you say hey 50 grand a month and you make 50 grand a month and nothing really changes like you get used to it at every level so looking back like Sometimes I wish I could go back and relive like how exciting that first grand, two grand, five grand, ten grand was. Um, so, but to, to your point, yeah, there's, there's pivots at every point. I grew a massive team. We got to a couple million in revenue and a massive team in that first office, and um, it just fell apart, man. I was burnt out. 
I didn't know how to actually structure a business, scale a business, hire and train leaders. All I knew how to do was make money. And I tried to bring a team to in to do that. And that's, I think, a big place where entrepreneurs fail is they don't really learn how to be a business owner. Um, they're hustlers that try to hire other people. But if you can't manage people, you can't hire people. Um, so and there's nothing wrong with either. But I really, the past couple of years have been me kind of going from a hustler to an actual entrepreneur and business owner and having, you know, frameworks and playbooks and uh, managing and stand-ups and checkpoints and KPIs and, and building a real um, infrastructure around our company that's scalable. Was there like one to two maybe specific things that you could point to in terms of like, hey, looking back on it, you know, these are my initial big mistakes. You know, it sounds like maybe kind of having having different team leadership and owning different segments of the business. Um, I would say but, try to know, do too many too many things at once is the biggest okay. thing. And every entrepreneur talks about it, like golden object syndrome, but it's literally lethal. Like, especially in the startup phase, like if you have a model that works and makes money, the entrepreneur curses your every idea you see, you know it can make money, and most of them can't. But it's it's picking that one thing that has a lot of upside and just, just doing that. And I still struggle with that. I still sometimes will start a side project or this and that. And I'm like two weeks later, I'm like, well, I'm doing it again. Like, what am I doing? I don't like I'll give you an example. Like three months three months ago, we have an amazing PPC department that run all of our digital marketing. And we we got us down so well. I'm like, why don't we take this and go sell it as like a PPC service? And I did it for two months and it did well, but I'm like, why am like why am I doing this? That same time just focus in what's already working uh, pays off way more. So that's my at any stage in business. That's the number one thing is build. That's something I learned from Brandon Turner, who taught me first time I met him five years ago in Maui. That's the first thing he told us. He's like, "This is a curse. Ignore it." And I was like, "Yeah, whatever. I have so many ideas." And and then you do it, and and you get into a bad spot. So I'd say number one is pick one bridge and build it all the way before you move on to anything else. And what that means is you have a team that can run it and man the machine. And then you can go off and do your next thing. And the second thing is just, it's a framework that I, every entrepreneur develops eventually if they're successful. Um, but it's something that I got from from a guy named Steve Sims who spoke at the last Maui Mastermind I was at. Uh, and he pretty much, he's he's really good friends with Elon Musk. And he was saying he was, he's been at most of the SpaceX launches. And he was telling me that Elon Musk's reaction when a rocket launch goes bad is he's a lot happier than when a rocket launch goes successfully because he knows that's a friction point he can jump in at and solve a lot of problems and they get massive leaps in their company. So that's, that's shifted my perspective around problems. So as an entrepreneur, like find a way to, to keep your, your framework and your, your kind of your outlook on your business as when stuff goes wrong, that's how, that's how you get better. Uh, the checks are awesome. The deals are awesome. But when, when things are going wrong and holes are being poked, that's truly the time that the time that you grow the most. So those two things, not getting distracted, and truly, truly, truly like embodying the, the belief that problems and issues that you scale are needed and valuable get seem to get people a long way. And that, that's a lot more useful than little things like little tweaks in the business. All that stuff happens naturally as you grow. Um, but those two main things, if you can truly embody those as an entrepreneur, you can do literally anything you want. Yeah, I think it's a big shift from an employee to an owner standpoint as well, where in an employee standpoint, you know, something goes wrong. You're like, that is not in my job description is not in my scope. It should not be what I'm responsible for. And you almost have this like entitlement mentality of like, like, yep. this is not my job. Like if something goes wrong. Like I'm responsible for what I'm doing. Right. Whereas on an owner standpoint, quite literally, your only job should be to fix the things that are breaking. Like you should be having everyone else doing the things that are already working. Exactly. That's all. Like my job right now in the companies is when something breaks, I build a new process, new system around it with our developers and our team, and then they take it and make it work and they use it again. So that's exactly right. Like all you're doing as an owner and you even want to scale out of that. Like eventually you want someone that becomes that person, but 
Um, you know, as a COO, COO of your CEO of your company, your your job is to hire and manage, and then to um, yeah, fix fix holes as they they appear. So I agree, hundred percent. What um, can you explain? Well, just real real quick, are you running two different businesses right now, or are you running one business? Three currently. Three. Okay. So this it's, I, I wanted to clarify that based on like the shiny object because we're guilty of it too. Like we do a million things. Um, but I know there's HelloPad. There's probably the business itself of, uh, well, actually, do you want to walk through them? Yeah. So, and I would say a lot of these businesses were vertically integrated. The ones that are successful, I started a lot of side businesses and the ones that are successful and scaled came naturally. It wasn't like a me sitting down trying to come up with a new business. It just like, it was people came to me and said, Hey, we need this. So the first one was, Went in real estate. We we fix and flip and wholesale. Some people would consider those two different businesses. I think they're one. It's all the same thing. It's real estate. If you hear a dog in the background too, sorry, we have a bunch of puppy puppies in our office right now. Um, and then from that came our coaching group because people, uh, as I did, and that's before I did the bigger pockets. I knew that was going to happen, and they kind of made me aware. But like you're going to get a lot of attention because you're young, and so I probably had once that podcast released, I probably had thirty to fifty DMs a day for the next year of people saying, "Hey." how did you do what you do so young? Can I, can I learn? So we've created a business around that. Um, so we serve as a couple hundred um, investors now on their journey. And then we have a call center. So that again, came vertically integrated. We needed it for our business. I started it. And then I have two partners now who have grown and sold big businesses that I've deleted equity to. And that's a very scalable, very sellable business. And that's where I spend a lot of uh, my brain power right now. Um, but those, those are the three things. So the real estate company, the call center and the coaching company. And what does that look like from a structure standpoint and kind of your involvement? You mentioned obviously kind of fixing things as they break, but are you day-to-day on all of them? Do you have kind of main operators for each one and then it just flows yeah. down from there? So it's chaos. And any entrepreneur tells you it's not as lying. Like it's still chaos. Like, yeah, I feel like we have a pretty good structure. We have a really good team. So the real estate company, I have a COO who handles like all of our payroll, all of our back end. I really step in when we need higher level, not, not, problem solving but new concepts so if my like if mike comes to me and says hey this is the issue we're having with the sales guys this is something that's wrong I'll, I'll i'll conceptualize a new funnel a new process a new system and then give it to my our coo to build build that for our team um, besides that the real estate company it's just a lot of visionary work a lot of um making sure we're headed the right direction in terms of the day-to-day we have a really good team we have good sales guys good transaction team good distribution team so not a ton of day-to-day like my day-to-day work is building systems and building tools and building processes out. Um, on the call center, I'm more of a visionary in that company where I am more involved in like vision and projects. We're, we're still very much the real estate company. We've been doing it for seven years. The call center, we're two years in and it's already, it's a bigger business revenue wise than the real estate company already, just because it's a, it's a easier industry to scale in, in terms of clients, but it's a, it's a lot more complex, a lot of moving parts. So I'm definitely jumping we're in a couple hats on that, but we still, we have a very good billing team. We have a very good operations team, um, client concierge team, all the callers and, and team leads and pod managers. That's all very dialed in. So my day-to-day on that is also pretty much a lot of building systems, building processes, building tools, and doing some visionary stuff on that as well. And the coaching company is pretty similar. We're, I'm actually running coaching calls. So myself, I'm coaching people actively every week, um, but still same thing, building better systems, processes, and tools, and giving our sales guys and, and our client success guys on that end. Um, the tools and resources they need to, to grow and scale as well. So pretty similar hats in every company, but you know, my, my seat in every business is very visionary. Um, I'm kind of a like traction. The book traction talks a lot about, you know, integrator visionary and like 7% of the population is kind of both. And I would definitely say I kind of fall in that both 
where I'm a very good systems integrator kind of guy. And I'm also a very good visionary. Um, and so I play, I wear both those hats in most of the companies to a certain extent. And I love it. I would, yeah, I would love to honestly have like the next 10 minutes, just almost be a rant on like how you think about things from a sales and acquisition side, because, um, so I don't know how much you, Gio told you about our business. We basically buy self-storage facilities throughout Texas. And right now we're trying, we're at this inflection point where like, we really want to go and start scaling it up. I bought four, hold them pretty much to like, uh, stabilize them and kind of like go through the whole value add process yep. over the last couple of years, pretty much after the last year. And uh, now we're at this point where like, great, we just brought an operations manager. We want to go now bring on an acquisitions analyst to go and start finding more off market deals and like bringing them into the funnel. If basically I could wave a magic wand and like you're on the team now, like you yeah. get you get a uniform and like you'd want to jump in and like build out this whole acquisition funnel uh, or like really realistically hire somebody to do it. How would you kind of go about thinking about that? And what were the questions that you'd be asking yourself? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would come in is I, I want to look at the first thing I want to look at is revenue per employee. So, so many startups were so overstaffed uh, and because there's a curse entrepreneurs have where they want to build a big business and when the big business comes, a lot of employees. So we tend to overstaff pretty easily, not just overstaff, but um, we staff with someone above the pay grade we need. I'm all for overpaying people um, and finding good talent, but I'll give you an example uh, of, a, of a decision we just had in our company of, you know, we're, we're trying to hire more underwriters for our sales team so we can get more offers out. It's a big issue in single family. You have to write, you have to to the volume we want to do, we have to have so many deals underwritten to get solid offers out on. It's a hard, it's one of our friction points over the past year. So we had two options. I say, okay, we can hire in office, pay 75 grand a year per underwriter, or I can go over to the Philippines or Egypt or somewhere where they have, they have MBAs, they're smart, they're educated, and I can pay $10 an hour and they can, they can underwrite deals all day. Like I went, we were going to scenario two. And most entrepreneurs just to have more people under the roof would go to scenario one and shell out money. So that's the first thing. I think in most businesses, you want to see revenue per employee of $150,000 or more per year. Um, so that's the first thing. So I'd say, okay, say, say we're doing a million bucks a year. Are we at or around six employees? Um, and if we are awesome, then I think we have the team that we, we would need. And it's just assigning roles responsibly to that team. So to scale, obviously, the first thing you need is more deal flow. Um, and I do a lot of work with people on that end as well. So I'd, I'd be putting in place a machine that then I could put someone on my team to run. A lot of people do it backwards to try to find the person to build the machine. But if someone doesn't have ownership in the company, they're really not going to build a machine that you want. Um, so if I came in as a team player, say I had ownership, whatever, I would put together a machine to give us control of our inventory in real estate. The number one thing that separates companies that grow massively and fast, like my, my buddy A.G. Osborne, who's also in self-storage, I've known him for years, or guys that grow slower, is can you control your inventory, right? Because the money's out there. Everyone knows you can find money for deals, you can get creative, you can find a way to do deals, value adds, all that kind of stuff. It's it's can you control your inventory? And that would be my main focus. So I'd be setting up on the acquisition side um, a, a good ISA that can, his only job every day is talking to motivated self-storage people. And then the rest of the funnel is pretty automated. You get your data side, um, you get your marketing down with, you know, where you're going to get your data, how you're going to qualify your data, optimize your data, prioritize your data. And then it's how do we sequentially market to that data set using a sequence of cold call, mail, text messaging, um, and and whatever other piece you want to include. I like to ask people like, hey, if I told you, you know, Steve has has a self-storage facility that you know if you get if you get in contact with him, he's gonna sell you. You're not gonna give him a cold call and stop at cold call. You're gonna send him a text, you're gonna send him a mailer. You if it's you might even hire someone on Craigslist to drive up to where his mailing address is and knock on his door. Uh, it's so you're not gonna give up. So it's building a sequential funnel that you can scale that can take you through 
that process and then drop every single day to an internal ISA opportunities to pursue. Um, and that's it. And self-storage side is not that many. You don't need two, three, four, five guys on the sales team because self-storage, it's limited supply, right? I don't, I don't know the number. I think it's between 15, 60,000 self-storage facilities in the country. I think the last time I checked, um, something somewhere around there. So you don't need like, there's not millions and millions of, of uh, assets. So you don't need as big a sales team. So I think a very dialed in funnel, uh, making sure we're not overhired and then, you know, putting the ISA that's experienced that can underwrite um, I don't think you need to have an underwriter and an ISA. I think they can do the same thing because the sales cycle and self-storage is pretty slow. It takes six months to a year to really get a deal pushed all the way through most of the time. Um, and usually they can do that all themselves. So that would be the first couple of weeks I make. I don't know if that answered your question specifically, but that's kind of how I would look at uh, it when I first jumped in. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really helpful. So I feel like it's really about reps, activities and data and kind of like making sure that they're a flywheel that kind of all play play nicely together. When when you were first starting out, I guess we're um, we're going with this as well. Is it's going to be a lot of phone calls and a lot of like just general activities to get in front of that seller. Um, there's not necessarily the most cut like there's there's tactics out there for sure when it comes to cold calling. Uh, what were some of the mistakes that you maybe you would have told your 19 year old self uh, up in that attic when you were first getting yeah. started on like how you can get through to the seller faster? Yeah, the the name of the game is is a. Uh rooming as much friction as you can for the seller. It's so hard to get people on the phone in 2022. They're getting marketed so many different ways. Once you have someone on the phone, it's about optimizing that phone call the best you can. So we moved to lag transfers. So now instead of submitting a lead and slowly working that lead, once we once our cold callers get a lead, they're, tra- they're going to transfer that to our sales team. So it's the same thing. Once you have someone on the phone, working them through as much as your process as you can, getting them comfortable with you, with you and who you are, sending them the credibility packet while you're on the phone and getting that them truly to know you and trust you on that initial touch because it's really, really, really hard to get people back on the phone once you've opened a conversation. Um, and then setting scheduled follow-ups. So, you know, say we get a cold caller that transfers a lead to our sales team. They give them our credibility packet. They trust us to know who we are. We set our, We make ourselves sound different, right? We're not some fly-by-night company. Here's our, sorry, here's our credibility packet. Here's where you can see our reviews. Here's where you can see past deals we've done. And then we set them on a calendar before all the up. So they actually get like a real email, real confirmation and make sure they, they know that this is a real legit operation and not a fly by night. Hey, we're just going to call you once in a while and see if you want to sell. So that's, that's the biggest thing. I just would say to myself when I was 19, take it seriously. And once you have someone on the phone, capitalize on it as soon as you can, um, because it's, most deals die because of speed and you're not able to get people back on the phone. On the uh, on the process side, that's you know it sounds like you've definitely focused a lot on on that and and utilize that to really scale out. Um, I think you guys also use was it Trainual, maybe. Yep. Um, I think for the documentation, yep. how do you view making sure you know the process is correct? Are you going in? Are you just making like a loom video in general about like, hey, this is how we do it? Then refining that down and training people, or you know, how do you kind of view the yeah, so I'll give you making sure the process is correct. And and that's part about a part about, you know, becoming a business owner and not an entrepreneur hustler, right? That's a big step of how do we document and delegate stuff effectively. So in terms of like strict SOP, when I'm in a creative process in my business, I write out a rough draft, I make a video, and then I make a detailed step by step. So it gets a video of me doing it step by step. And a couple other things you want that most people miss. One, you want very clear for your team a written description of, of what does it mean when that task is done? Like how do they know that task is done? That, that's a big thing. So most business owners, will, an SOP to them is a quick video, a loom video. It doesn't cut it because they don't know how to initiate that task, like what initiates it and what ends that task. So having a very clear start and end to a task is huge. And then they can go find it. So if one of our team members, they run into an issue, 
it's whatever it is, they quickly go into our training where they can find that. And they're going to, it's going to have a video. It's going to have a step-by-step instruction. It's also going to tell them, hey, why was this task triggered? And does your action meet the trigger? Has this task truly been triggered? And then from there, how do you know you're done? Okay. Those two big things with SOP. And then for us, we want quarterly, every single like department head, so to call it, we want a quarterly SOP check-in. So, because your business is going to change quarter by quarter. So every single quarter, you want them going through for their department, every single SOP and updating that, that SOP log with stuff that they've changed for their team or you've changed for them and their team. Um, and that kind of keeps that SOP playbook clean. People know when to start tasks, they know when to end tasks and know why they're doing it. And then from there, you know, the, the managing part, I, I think push forms are huge because you as a manager, you don't need micromanaging. So when you give people tasks and deadlines, having some kind of um, Slack channel, um, but they can create a push form for you. So you can just see, hey, this was done. So you don't have to go check in with them, but they can push that there. Because um, that's that's the biggest thing with business owners and micromanaging is like so much stuff is going on in our head. We don't really know. All of a sudden we'll have a thought in the car like, oh shit, was that done? And you'll hit up that person. So instead having a Slack channel, you can check to see, hey, was this done? Okay, yeah, he pushed it here. And then all the push form is, is him simply saying, and you can create automation, but you don't have to. Him saying, hey, um, this was done. And that's what I like to do on my SOPs. My task complete thing will be them updating the Slack channel um, and actually saying, hey, task XYZ was complete. Uh, so I don't, I don't have to go micromanage people as a business owner or, or managers don't, because that's where you get in trouble with employees, especially with longevity. They don't want to feel micromanaged. I hope that's that a really good point. Yeah. No, no, that, I mean, that, that's definitely a really, really good approach. I think, especially like, it sounds like you guys are opening up in a San Diego office. Maybe, I don't know how big you are being in person versus remote and where you want to go and hire people. But the fact that you use overseas talent definitely shows me like you're, you're pretty cool with people, at least being distributed. If you can get the right talent and the right, um, kind of compensation. But what's really helpful and from my standpoint is like we'll have a daily stand up at the beginning of every day. And then if we want to go over a specific thing, like we want to go over a specific property and like all of the improvements we're going over, we'll schedule some kind of like one hour call just to go over that. Uh, but besides that, like after that daily meeting at 10 a.m., like you kind of have to just rely on Slack of saying, hey, this got done, that got done, rather than having to follow up and make it seem like you don't trust the employee. Exactly. Yeah. So the. Uh... We just created a reporting channel for each um, department in our company. And just because I want to go in, like I can go into like our disposition team every day into the channel and I can see I one of our VAs is putting in their actual KPIs from them every single day. So at the end of each day, I get a report from our dispo team that says, how many new vetted buyers do we vet today? How many new buyer leads did we get today? How many deals do we send out today? How many deals do we sign today? And so I can just quickly see here at a glance, a daily, weekly, monthly summary. And we also have a main intelligence sheet, like, like a master intelligence sheet, where you can see our whole company on a sheet. But just for a daily, it keeps me in a, in a place where I feel like everyone's doing their thing every day. Um, so yeah, having that reporting channel per department is huge. Um, especially, I would say it's more important the smaller you are. Uh, because mm -hmm. the smaller you are, the more important each employee is. And giving employees autonomy and freedom inside your organization and feeling like they're not micromanaged is the way to keep them long-term. So is that like, I think a very helpful practice that I've started doing over the past couple of months is literally just writing down like, okay, here's where I'm at today. Here's a goal that I want to go and achieve in one year, five years, 10 years, for like whatever time frame you want to go and set for yourself. And then asking yourself the question, what's the biggest bottleneck from stopping me to get there, right? The fact that you've been in real estate and you seem like an incredibly self-motivated individual, I've got to imagine that you have very lofty goals for yourself. Um, when it comes to like, where you're at today versus where you want to be yeah. is oftentimes the biggest bottleneck just hiring better talent and developing better systems to go and have, have that talent flourish? Or is it like 
other stuff that you're thinking about right now? Yeah, I don't, I don't create like personal, personally revenue, like money goals for me. Um, I never have, like, I, I don't have a number in my head that I'm trying to get to. I just like building businesses and I like building teams and I like employing people and I like the day-to-day chaos and I just like business. So for me, it's like, like I, like, like I was an athlete, like, like I, I don't focus on like breaking scoring records. I just focus on playing every day and whatever happens, happens. And I'm, I think, I think people forget too, like as an entrepreneur, like I know I'm never going to be Elon Musk. Like I'm, I'm realistically, I'm like in my, I can say in my head one day, it'd be cool to be like a billionaire, but realistically I, my, my talent as an entrepreneur probably isn't a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. So I think we all have to, we all have our own ceilings too. So I think goal setting on a personal side is hard because for some people like uh, a $10 million business might be the most they them themselves can get to with how much they want to work, how they're wired. And that's great. So I think setting those goals is hard. Like, and for me, I just, whoever, whatever my potential is, I want to find out. That's really it. On the business side, Mike and Mike and I, for the coaching company, real estate company, we sat down this morning. Like we sat down a lot because we're constantly refining where we're headed. And uh, we have revenue goals for that and what kind of direction we want to head into. But um, like you're saying, we sit down, we kind of bullet point out the most important steps to get there and try to cut out a lot of the fluff because a lot of the stuff that we spend time, any entrepreneur spends time on isn't working, isn't actually getting you where you want to go. Like like another quote Brandon told me is like, you're, most entrepreneurs are, are so talented that they're successful um, not because of what they do. They're, sorry, they're they're successful in spite of what they do, not because of what they do. So most of the stuff we do is busy work that we, we just we we all know it, right? Like getting in a car, driving to an appointment, you could easily not have. Like we all do it. So most of us are talented enough where we're successful in spite of all that. That if we can get a, eliminate all that and really just focus on that one, two, three things that are going to truly move us forward, and that's usually comes down to yeah, it comes down to a simple process or a simple hire. Um, and so, yeah, I think having revenue goals is great, but you're usually two or three good decisions away from where you want to be two or three decisions or people. And that's, I, I operate that way. I think people get you to your goals a lot quicker than um, no matter how much work you do yourself, like needing the right person can accelerate that exponentially, which I think doing stuff like this is so important because there could be one person that listens to this that DMs me and I put out a need one day and they have an answer. And that's how I've grown so quick is by people. Yeah, I mean, we've 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 noticed that on the just the podcast ourselves, right? Like we've opened up so many doors and and met interesting people and and partnered up on deals, and it's always really fascinating to see where it goes. I'm I'm curious on kind of the personal, maybe not personal, business side. How come you guys haven't? Um, and where's your head in terms of maybe attacking more kind of a buy and hold, or you know, some of these other real estate strategies? You know, you have a cash flowing business. Um. Are you funneling some of that money into real estate projects yourself or personally, or you want to just get this flywheel running as big as possible before you kind of go down that route? Yeah. So I had a portfolio of duplexes a while ago um, that I sold off and I had kind of experimented that, experimented with some other stuff. I have a nice single, like, home that my wife and I live in that I invested a lot of money in. And that's kind of like, a, um, it's in a very safe market in San Diego. But in terms of like, I don't like half do like like i talked about bridges i don't like starting a new bridge until one's done so i don't feel like our yeah these are all cash businesses but i don't feel like they're stabilized to where i want them to go really so me, me and my partner sat down this morning we said hey he, by the end of 2023 here's what we were as company to be and we're on track we'll get there much before that in a minute i feel like our bridges are stabilized enough with my three active income streams the call center coaching and real estate 
that's when Mike and I will sit down and we'll build a business around going and acquire a larger asset class. We haven't decided between multifamily, self-storage, triple net. I have pretty good mentors in every space. So we're pretty much just going to decide what we want to go after. And we're going to take our sale, our top sales guys, and we're going to go all full steam ahead on acquiring and um, the ones we don't acquire will sell off. But that's, so yes, that's on, that's on the horizon. Um, but I don't like doing stuff halfway. So when we get there, I don't, you know, it'll be, we go from zero to a couple hundred units the first year. That's not going to be like, we pick up one thing here, pick up one thing there. It'll be a full, it'll take our full attention. And it makes a ton of sense too, because especially if everyone talks about how the toughest part in this business is deal flow, the fact is, is like all of your businesses are entirely centered around finding the best deals absolutely possible. Exactly. Um, so, so you're kind of building up that core competency from day one, which is really cool. When I think I, I was listening to that episode two years ago and you were saying that 90% of the deals that you had done at that point were wholesale deals and around 10% were flips or maybe you bought them, renovated a little bit yep. and sold them off again. Is it still roughly that yep. same breakdown? Yeah, yep. so it's still mainly on the wholesale yeah. side. Yeah, and I tell people like why they ask me because I don't, I honestly don't give two shits about real, I don't know if you can cuss in this podcast, but <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't, I don't give two shits about real estate. Um, to be honest with you, like real estate doesn't that cool to me. Like I like nice houses, of course, but like construction and all that kind of stuff. Like I don't, I don't care for. I'm a business builder. I like to build companies, and my first mm -hmm. vehicle was real estate. Um, that's all it was. It was the product and the company I built it around. So wholesaling is a quicker sales cycle. It's more scalable. We do flip easy stuff if it's like a if it makes sense. But I don't like nerd out on. Like I have no ego about like flipping a ton of homes or anything like that. It doesn't really do it for me. Um, I think the wholesale model is beautiful because it's a quick sales cycle. They're big checks. Um, and oops, I, I like business. I don't like real estate specifically. What, um, what do you think you'd be doing right now if you weren't doing real estate on the business front? Have you given that any thought? Well, I'm already like, I would say I'd be, uh, most, a lot of my time is already spent with a call center. So I'd say I'd be full-time there because that opportunity is immense and that's a very sellable business. So, and I have great partners. So I spent a lot of time on that. That's kind of my, that will be the thing that creates a large liquidity event that I can truly accelerate my wealth a lot faster than just these active cash flow businesses because um, it's a pretty powerful the lead the lead the lead gen space is a pretty insane industry so that's what I would do if I if I had to start from zero again so to speak I would just get in, I would get into the lead gen space hundred percent every time yeah I think I think from from the perspective of like hey you are you know young twenty year old kid his only goal is to make a bunch of money right now. Any, any sort of advice, what you tell them to go like, hey, spend the next couple of years hammering down and getting, you know, skill A and B and combining them or what would, what would you kind of pitch in that direction? Here's exactly what I would do. I would save up about five grand. I would hire three to four Filipinos off Upwork, get them in a, a small office in the Philippines, cost about 200 bucks a month. And I would train them on the solar solar industry and I would go find a solar company on Facebook or run a Facebook ad for $2 a day. You'll find a solar company and sell them leads. Um, and you have a $15,000 a month business within the next six months if you do that. So are you saying the Philippines are are cold calling residential Correct. homeowners and pitching Correct. them on solar? So exactly. There's a, there's a subsidy. That's such a specific right answer. Now. I love it. <laughs> yeah. There's a, it's subsidized right now. So solar is it's about as close to free as you can get for people right now um, in terms of how it's set up. So that's a two year window, I think, before that gets harder. But yeah, that's that's exactly what I would do if I went to zero, so to speak. Um, All right. Well, so I will say there are a lot of hungry, smart operators where we'll frequently get comments after this podcast that 
people get, I don't think that you'll get nearly as many DMs as coming off of the bigger pockets episode, but like I do think that you'll get a lot of DMs from people saying, Hey, I heard what you're doing, want to get involved, something like that. If someone wants to spin this up and they want, I don't know, investment or something like that, is that something you'd be interested in? Investment? No, I mean they can hit me up and I can give them more guidance. Like I I I would love to see them take that and, and actually implement it and crush it. So I'm happy to help them how I can, but like uh I I don't really like in terms of investment, no, but like I'm happy to help however I can with with them getting it off the ground. Yeah. They don't they don't really need it. Yeah, they don't really need investment. They can't find a way to hustle and sell a few couches and come up with a couple grand to start. I don't know if they're gonna make it work anyways. No, very, very good point. Um, I love the fact that you had that specific of an answer right off the bat. So uh if you're listening to this, looking for something to do, that's absolutely the next step for you. Um cool, man. This has been awesome. I I feel like I really got a good glimpse in terms of like how you think, how you hustle, and like how you're building all of your companies right now if people want to go and find a way to learn from you work with you um do whatever how can they go and get in contact with you yeah so on the uh if you guys need lead generation services in your business for whatever you can easy button leads.com um we have a great ops team this free discovery call you can go through to see how we can help supplement your lead flow and um, acquisitions um on the real estate side uh the coaching side it's uh you can dm me on instagram we don't really have a our funnel is still being built out for that. So you can just come to me directly and I can connect you with our onboard team for that. If you're interested in getting your business off the ground and running, we're really good at getting people to from zero to a million. Um, that's kind of our focus on that group. And then on the real estate side, if you live in Washington and you have deals that, that you want to sell or we're buyers and we're uh, a good kind of middleman to help you sell stuff. So um, besides that, hit me in my, I'm very open to my DMS and everything. I try to, I spend pretty much a good hour every night. I seem to get through all my DMS every day. So, um, whatever you have questions on, happy to assist you in your journey for sure. Cool. Thank you all. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks.